God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've caused it to be written. And God, I pray that you would speak to us right where we need to be spoken to this very morning, this very time. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that gift. Thank you that you love us. And now, God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so chapter 7 of John. We're moving through the Gospel of John. This is the 23rd week we've been in John. Now, not consecutively because we've done some things here and there. So I'm figuring we've got 14 more chapters, only 14 more chapters to go. So that means we should finish around uh, the beginning of 2012. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, you know, I'm finding it challenging to to teach out of such a, a deep and, and, and meaningful book as, as the Gospel of John. Some weeks, some weeks you just you open it up and you do the reading and you do the research and it's just right there. It's just like, whoa, this is where, this is where you're going to go. Other weeks, yeah, not so much. And, and in fact, this week, it would have been so much easier for me to, to just gloss over the first like 30 verses of the Gospel of John. I mean, I would have done it very pastoral, you know, you know like... After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Well, see, what it's saying there is Jesus, after this, went around in Galilee. And, and that would have been, I could do that. I could have got a whole sermon out of that in like 30 verses, I'm telling you. But, but you know, some, some weeks it's just, you're like, God, what, what's going on here? What, it's not coming to me. I don't, I don't get what you're trying to say. And it becomes really a labor of love because there's, there's more prayer put in it. There's more um, thinking about it. There's more going, God, what? You know, I'm running out of time here. It's Thursday. And, and, and so some days, some weeks, I begin to really sweat it out. And what I find is, just like in life, sometimes inspiration, it, it ebbs and flows, right? I mean, I mean, sometimes you're just like, oh, this is amazing. And you're just so divinely inspired. And then other times, you're just, you're just dragging. And you have no idea about anything what the Word of God is trying to share. And so I was, I was thinking about this and wrestling with this all through the week, and I, I got to thinking, I got to wondering, how much of the Bible do we Jesus followers just, just kind of gloss right over? I mean, I mean, how much of it do, do we really take in? Like, you know, the parts of the Bible, sometimes they become so familiar to us that we just, we just read right over them. And, and, they, and they stop kind of, we stop kind of noticing what they're saying. And then there's parts of the Bible that, that are just way too confusing, and we just read over quick to get to the good stuff because I'm not going to waste my time with that. I have no idea what they're talking about. Like, you know, Romans, easy book. You know, or, you know, how many, how many of you have spent time in the book of Numbers? Wes, rock on. <laughs> you know, so, and, and, so, and, and, then, and then there's those transitional parts, right? There's the parts that you just have to read through to get to the red letter words, you know, or the traditional or the transitional parts that are just like, where, where's the where's the good stuff in this? And so I began to wonder, how much do we really miss when we read the Bible? So thinking about it, wrestling over it. You know, I believe that we Christians, we really do miss a lot of what God is trying to tell us. 
in, in, from, from the Bible. And in part, like in, in, in our everyday reading. And the reason for that is many times, many of us, well, we don't read it every day. And, and I bet for some, maybe, maybe it's every other day. That's pretty good. But I bet you even for some, you're sitting there and there's nothing on TV and you're like, oh, man, I haven't read the Bible in a long time. Where is it? Right? And, 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 so, and so we start to miss the things that God really wants to speak to us. We start to miss the realities, living those realities of what are in the book, those parts in the Bible, the stories that are familiar, those parts are familiar. We just forget about what they've taught us. And those parts that we don't really understand, we just gloss right over them and we miss their truths completely. And the transition parts, we just kind of read, just like I said, to get to the red letter parts. But this, this, this book is all of God's word. Every word of it. Red letter and black letters. Every and, every the, the dreaded therefore, they're all God's word. And, and I wonder if, what, wonder what, what our lives would be like. What our families would be like. What our, what our neighborhoods would be like and towns and say, what would the world be like if we Jesus followers began to stop reading the Bible like it was a magazine and we actually began to study it and to engage it differently and deeper. That we wouldn't just gloss over the parts we've read for years and years and years, that maybe we would engage them in a different way, that we would actually stop and figure out what those difficult passages are saying, and that we would take every word as the word of God. What would the world be like? I'm, I'm just saying. Chapter 7, John, turn there. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, okay, let's stop right there. So it begins with after this, which is kind of this indefinite period of time that's taken place. Jesus in chapter six has taken his church of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and he's grown it much, much smaller. In fact, these people have all left very angry. And it all happened around the time of Passover, okay? So now we're nearing the Festival of Tabernacles. And, and on the Jewish calendar, that's about six months apart. So Passover takes place, a six-month time period goes, and the, temp, uh, the, the Festival of Tabernacles begins. So we've got about six months that, that Jesus has been wandering around Galilee, now, the text tells us he, he doesn't want to go into Judea because, well, there's people there that are looking to kill him, which has got to make anybody feel a little uncomfortable. So, so he decides he's going to hang around. And so after six months, even, even after six months, the hostilities towards Jesus continue. To continue to the point where now they want to kill him. They want him dead. They're plotting on how to do it. Maybe they're looking for a way to make it look like an accident. They definitely don't want to get caught, but they're looking for a way to kill Jesus. And it's the Jewish leaders that are trying to do it. That means that it's the religious leaders that are trying to kill Jesus. 
learned men, men who love God, who worship God, who, who teach others about God, they want Jesus dead. And I believe that they really believe that that's the best thing for everyone. First of all, Jesus cuts into their whole, you know, making money scheme, the Sadducees and all very rich people. Second of all, he is just, he is just messing with their religious standards. So the best thing to do is kill this guy. Now, I can understand us common folk missing the point. I mean, I mean, I can understand just everyday people, you know, people who haven't academically studied the Bible, who, who can't, um, can't uh, um, memorize, who haven't memorized like the entire Old Testament. I mean, that's what the Jewish leaders would do. I can understand us missing the point. But these, these are scholars. These, these are very educated men, and they completely miss it. How can that happen? Maybe we need to ask Pat Robertson, and, and he could tell us. I, I don't know. So, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Wes, can we strike that from the record, please? (laughs) But regardless, these people want Jesus dead. Now, understand, Jesus doesn't stay in Galilee because he's scared. Jesus isn't scared, but he knows that there's much more to do. There's much more that the Father is calling him to do. He is following the will of God and making sure that everything he is called to do is getting done. He can walk in there. He can flex some divine muscle. He can just just take control of the entire situation. He just fed thousands and thousands of people with a Lunchable. He's curing the sick. He walked on water. Do you think a few religious leaders would actually do something that Jesus didn't want them to do to, to, to do to him. No, Jesus isn't scared. He stays for a purpose. He chooses to wait. I think we can learn something from that. This idea that Jesus chooses to wait. See, I find an evangelical world that we just love to go in guns a-blazing. We're going we're gonna to take this battle to the front lines we're going we're gonna to fix these people. We're going to do battle with them. We'll show them who is right. And many times we lose credibility with so many people. Many times we lose the fight altogether. And, 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 and people walk away from us shaking their heads. And these people, man, they, they need what we have to offer. They need Jesus. But see, Jesus, he chose, he chose to wait chose to pick his battle. He chose to pick his time. He listens to God. He follows what God is telling him. And this means that he has a very intimate and deep relationship with God, that he is, he is not only speaking to him, but he's listening to what God has to say to him. He is his walking in the spirit and not in the, what the Bible would call the flesh, just, just our humanness, our, our own strength and our own timing. Jesus walks in God's spirit. In Romans 8, it tells us that those who are led by the spirit of God are his children. So Jesus hangs back and he waits. No one will take Jesus' life. He will give it freely. Go back to John. 
After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go up to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. This entire part of the text begins to move us to this festival of tabernacles. And his brothers want him to go. His brothers are encouraging, encouraging him. Hey, come on, get off your tukis. That's, that's Yiddish. Get off your tukis and, and get going so that people can see what you're doing. Go to the festival. Now, Let's think about the festival for a minute. The festival is, is, a, is a celebration of what God is doing. It comes on the scene way back in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn to Leviticus 23. Let me just read you a little bit about the festival of tabernacles. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and, the la- and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. So beginning with the 15th day of the 17th month, I'm sorry, of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. And the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from trees, from palms, from willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So this festival is a harvest festival. Now, on our calendar, it would take place um, end of September into October. And every Jewish male that lived within a 15-mile radius of the temple was required to come to this festival. And because it was so sacred and so important to the Jews, they would travel many, many more miles to actually get there and to celebrate what was going on. It lasted for seven days, and there was an extra day added on to the end. And it was a celebration to remember how God led their ancestors through the wilderness to the promised land. It was a reminder when, of the days when they were pilgrims and they were sojourners in a land that was foreign to them. It was literally a way to celebrate the journey. They would, they would build these, these small shelters, millions of people in and around Jerusalem, in and around the temple. They would build these small shelters out of sticks and twigs. And you had to make sure that you can see the stars through the roof because they were very temporary and it, was, and it was a reminder to them that, that remember when your ancestors were homeless and they lived in the desert, but, but God, God saved them. God brought them through. During this festival, water was a big deal because as, as Israel would, would be in the desert, 
They had nothing to drink and no water. And there was a time where Moses, he hit the rock and water poured from the rock and it saved these people. They were dying of dehydration and God supplied them water, drinkable water. And back then it would have been called living water. And he saved his people from dying. And so during this festival, they would go to the well and they would take a a golden pitcher and they would fill it with water. And all of the people present would recite the words of Isaiah 12, where it says, with joy, you will fill your jug um, from the well of the Lord's salvation. And they would, they would all go back to the altar and they would take this, this water and they would pour it through a, a solid silver funnel and they would pour it on the ground to remember that God saved them. That when they were in need, when they were, when they were in trouble, God stepped up and through the miraculous intervened and saved them. They were to celebrate these things. They were to, to remember these things. On the first day, there's no work. Everybody has off. Even Walmart had to take it off. And on the last day, everybody didn't, did no work. This was a celebrate. Seven days of camping for an entire nation. Celebrating what God was doing. Celebrating what God had done. And it said that this is a lasting ordinance for all generations. You know, I think as I I begin to mull this whole thing over, I think we as Christians, we have lost the art of celebration. I I mean, and and I I say like, like what is up with that? We, we, We seem to have strayed from the joy of the Lord's salvation. And it's not just, it's not just with us. Way back in David's day in Psalm 51, he cries out to God, return to me the joy of your salvation. But, but I think as, as, as Christians, as a community, you know, we've, we've lost the art to celebrate, the, the desire to celebrate. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to take all of us and to get at least half to come to some community thing that we would do together, some meal. To get, to get, and now, I know it's, you know it's not like, oh, I'm not going to that stupid thing. Well, maybe it is, but you know, shame on you. But I mean, we're all, we're all busy. We all got things to do. I understand that. But, but it's even hard for like once a month to get all of us together to celebrate what God has done, to remember the things God has done. And God, tell, he commands an entire nation to do it. And guess what? They do. And even if they couldn't get to the temple and they lived way far away, they would still hold this sacred festival wherever they were. Building temporary shelters outside and living in them. All of us Jesus followers, all of us have a story to tell of God saving us. Everyone who follows Jesus has a story to tell of God stepping into their life and saving them. Some stories are are much more dramatic than others. Some of you have lived your life as a Christian all your life, and you've never really been in the pit of despair or the the very pit of hell. I mean, you might think your story is kind of boring. Man, that's like the best story. I pray that story for my children every day, that they would have that story. That's an amazing story. We all have a story to tell. Can it be that we don't celebrate so much anymore? Is because we've forgotten our story. We have forgotten 
the goodness of God? Or is it, is it maybe we just don't realize what we've actually been saved from? And we don't, we don't remember? And, you know, that's, that's just the beginning of God's story in our lives. A while ago, I was, I was talking with, with Kevin Dennis, and uh, we were just chatting about stuff. And he said, you know, this, this for them, this has been a really difficult time for, for Amanda and Kevin. Really difficult. The, the peaks and the valleys are intense. But he said to me, every day I have with Owen, I'm grateful for. I'm like, whoa. All right. Owen, Owen doesn't hug. Owen doesn't talk. Now he opens his eyes, which is, which is amazing. But Kevin said to me, every day I have with him, I'm grateful for it. And I got to thinking about that. And, and, and man, we can, we can learn something from that. Is the reason we've lost the art of celebration or even the desire to celebrate is because we take everything for granted. Let's think about it. Things like, how many of you woke up this morning and in the course of your morning, you turned on a light? Anybody? Oh, not this side, right? Okay, most of you have turned on a light. And I will bet sometime through the course of this day, those of you that didn't, you will get to that light eventually. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, here he goes. You know, it's a little extreme, Dan. Come on, really? A light? Well, okay, just, just bear with me on this, okay? If you've turned on a light, that means you, yes, you, have electricity in your house. Now, there's over a billion and a half people that live in this world that have access to no electricity. I'm not talking about the little wire that hangs down in the middle of the room with the single bulb. I'm not talking about spotty electricity, you know, comes in and out. I'm talking access to no electricity at all. That's 25% of the entire world has no electricity. None. Have you ever tried to live one day without electricity? You know, you know did you? Well, you, Haiti, okay. <laughs> 10 days. Rich knows what I'm talking about in Haiti. You know what that means? That means no lights. That means no computers, no internet, no email, <gasps> no phone, <laughs> no, no, no iPod, no gas stations to gas up our cars that probably wouldn't run anymore because there'd be no electricity to charge the batteries. That means there'd be, there'd be no cooking. There's no refrigeration. There's no freezers. There's no traffic lights. There's, there's, and you can fill in the blank. What would the hospitals do if they had no electricity for one day? What would your dentist do? Sit down, this is going to be good. If they had no electricity for one day. And, and we would not even be able to get water into our homes. Oh, let's talk about water for a minute. 1.1 billion people go without water. Clean drinking water. 1.1 billion people. Almost 4,000 children die every day in the world because of a waterborne illness. Um, we received an email from Emily Robbins who um, made it to, to um, Ghana and she's safe and sound and doing great. But she, she, she listed in her email 
how they conserve. Like when you wash your hands, they save that water because they're going to use that water to water the plants, right? And, and so all these people go without water. We, the average American, we use about 158 gallons of water every day. We flush our toilets. We, we wash our hands. We wash our clothes. We wash the dishes. We wash our cars. We wash our children. We take showers. We take those nice, long Calgon bubble baths to wash our cares away. We cook. We water our gardens so that we can bring the vegetables in and cook them for our dinner. And then we wash the dishes. We water our lawns to make them all green because his lawn is not going to be greener than my lawn. All in the context of 1.1 billion people that go without water. Have we lost the art of celebration because we take our entire life for granted? I have no idea why I was born in America at this time with an abundance of resources that billions of people don't have access to. I have no idea why God chose me to be in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. Now, I know you're thinking, I got to look at that budget again, but, but look, hear me out. <laughs> I, it's, it's online. I make $53,000 a year. That puts me the 57,864,434th richest person in the world out of six billion people, that puts me in the 0.96% of the richest people in the world. I have no idea why God has put me here, but he has. He's let me be born in this time and in this place. And I will be perfectly honest with you all. I am just as guilty as taking the things in my life for granted as anyone else. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes I get crabby. I know it's hard to believe, but some, San, you be nice. Sometimes I do get crabby, but unlike all of you, I am a pastor. And so, (laughs) hear me out. I am a pastor which means my crabbiness is very different from yours. My crabbiness is Satan himself oppressing me, trying to, trying to take me away, take my focus away from the things that I have to do as a pastor. Things like prayer and, and, and studying the Bible. And maybe even in that, that spiritually oppressed crabbiness that I may, I may offend one of you. And then you'll get angry with me and you'll leave the church. Or maybe if I, I've offended you so much in my spiritually oppressed crabbiness that you may walk away from your faith altogether. You see, my crabbiness is part of Satan's master plan to ruin the church. Therefore, ruin the kingdom of God. Do you see the difference? And when I begin to think about it that way, I feel much better about myself. I, I do, because it's not my fault. I walk around with, with a target on me, and, and Satan's fiery arrows of crabbiness, they're always coming at me. And sometimes I get hit. It's much easier for me to, to, to accept that instead of the truth, which is probably my crabbiness is due to me feeling sorry for myself 
in the context of me just not being grateful for the blessings that God has given me every day. In Leviticus, God commands Israel to celebrate. He commands them to take some time and and live some joy in life. Find the joy in the things that God has done. Celebrate, party, eat big meals together. Take some time off from work. God wants us to remember. He's always reminding um, his, his people in the Old Testament, I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's always reminding them, and not because he's some narcissist, but because, because we would tend to go through life a little bit differently if we always remembered the goodness of God. Our lives would be lived a little differently if we, if we always remembered that we were loved and that we were cherished and that we were cared for. When Jesus was at the Last Supper and he, he, he gives us this whole idea of communion, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And it's not from some place of arrogance. It's not like, you better remember this. He wants us to remember that, that, that we're loved, that God has loved us so much. He has done everything that he can to get us back. He's given us every opportunity to come home to him. He wants us to remember that, that we are a prized possession, every one of us. And he wants us to remember what has been done to bring us home. To remember and to celebrate. Man, and when we're in a relationship like that, when we've been loved like that, that relationship is different. It's it's joyful. It's fulfilling. It's one you actually want to be in. It's one you want to engage in. And and that's God's desire for us, a joyful, vibrant relationship with him. God understands there's a lot in this life that's going to drag us down. There's a lot in this life. We're going to get punched. We're going to get suckered punched. We're going to have things happen to us that, that we never saw coming. There are so many things that can, that can suck the very life out of us. God knows that. And, and even, even he knows that being in a relationship with him, it's not so easy all the time. That, that, that when, we, when, when God does the work in our lives of refining and taking apart, when Jesus brings us to those breaking points in our life, that's hard work. God understands that. He's not, he's not ignorant of it. He knows what we go through down here. So he says, wait, wait, just take some time. Relax a little bit. Remember. Remember that I love you. Celebrate. Find some joy. He knows that left to our own vices, we're going to forget. Left to our own vices, we will focus in on the negative. I spoke with a friend uh, a while ago who spent some time, three weeks in Africa, and he, he and his wife were going um, village to village, and they were enc- encouraging and, and praying with and, and speaking into the lives of pastors um, that were pastoring in these, these um, outre- outlaying villages in, in Africa. And uh, he was saying that on Sundays, people will walk for hours, walk for hours to get to church. I mean, I wouldn't drive for hours. To get, I wouldn't drive for hours. I wouldn't. 30 minutes, I'm done, I'm going to a new church. I mean, these people walk for hours to get to church. 
You know what church is? Sometimes church is just a, a, a six-pole uh, grass roof. There's, there's no air conditioning. There's no fans. There's no sound system. There's no projector. There's no screen. There's no electricity. And, and there's this saying, you know, it's, it's, it's hot. And, but then there's, then there's Africa hot. Well, when you're in Africa, it's always Africa hot. And so these people, many of them walking for hours to get to this community, and they get to church on Sunday, and they worship for hours, three and four hours, singing and dancing and enjoying each other's company. They are grateful for the things that God has given them, the things that we, won't, we would turn down, we don't want. They're thankful that maybe that day, that day they might get a meal to eat. And they're going to have some, they are going to have some water to drink. That water would make each one of us in here really sick for a really long time. But they're grateful that they have it. They're grateful that they have a community that they can get together and be encouraged with and celebrate what God is doing. Sometimes they celebrate that they have, that somebody, some missionaries come in and they bring medicine. And they celebrate God's goodness. They are grateful for things that most of us would be miserable with. Most of us would say, I can never live like that. Those are the things that they're grateful for. And they celebrate God's goodness for hours on Sunday. Church, we need to relearn the art of the festival. We need to resurrect celebration, not only as a community, but, but in our own lives. We need to begin, and I'm speaking to me, we need to begin to be grateful for the things that we have. Stop always looking at the things that we don't have. And so Jesus, Jesus is about to attend Festival of Tabernacles. Pray. God, we want to, we want the joy of your salvation, God. We, I claim that for us right now. I claim that for your church, God, the joy of your salvation. And Lord, if, if people here are just, they don't have that joy in their life, God, I pray that right now where they sit, that you would just fill them with, with your love, fill them with your um, with a desire to, to, uh, to even know you, God. I pray that you would fill them with joy. Fill them with joy, God. Fill them with the joy of your salvation. Don't let one walk from this place, God, without feeling or sensing that you are with them, that you will never leave them, that you have never forsaken them. You will never forsake them. And God, help us, help us to celebrate. Amen.